0: This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Speaking of Asia podcast by The Straits Times. This is Ravi Valur, and I'm the paper's Asia columnist and associate editor. This series of podcasts focuses on issues relevant to Asia and distills experience from my four decades of covering the Asian continent. My topic for the month is the situation in the Taiwan Straits, and this podcast is recorded in the aftermath of U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. I'm privileged to have with me one of the leading experts on China and Taiwan, Mr. Drew Thompson. He is a visiting senior research fellow at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy in Singapore. Drew Thompson is not only an academic but also a practitioner of statecraft. For seven years until 2018, he served in the Pentagon as Director for China, Taiwan, and Mongolia in the Office of the Secretary of Defense. In that role, Drew was responsible for supporting the Secretary of Defense in managing military-to-military relations. Before that, he was Director of China Studies at the Center for the National Interest in Washington, D.C. He speaks fluent Mandarin, and he has worked on HIV-AIDS program with the Ministry of Health in Beijing. Drew, welcome to Speaking of Asia.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Drew, where are we on the Taiwan situation today?
1: Well, I think it's important to remember that cross-strait tensions didn't begin with Nancy Pelosi's visit uh, just about two months ago. That this is really a conflict that's been ongoing since pretty much the 1930s, uh, and it has its origins in. The founding of the Communist Party in 1921 and their armed opposition to the the Republic of China then on the mainland, uh, which then subsequently uh, retreated to Taiwan in 1949. So, so there have been cycles of, of tension uh, as well as cycles of détente between China and Taiwan for decades, and we're currently in a period of heightened tension. So, so it's it's really important to recognize that this isn't new, and it also isn't novel, uh, but. The, the current tensions today are, I think there are three sort of key factors that, that really stand out to me. And, and the first is that China's stance towards Taiwan is really hardening and its ability to compel other countries as well as Taiwan is really increasing. So, so Xi Jinping, since, since he came into power, has just been much more assertive in his style of governance than his predecessors. Um, the Chinese military is much more powerful than it was 20 years ago. And China's foreign policy under Xi Jinping is is also very uncompromising and and, and maximalist. It's basically Beijing sets preconditions for um, engagement. and, And that includes requiring other countries, including Taiwan, to accept the one China principle. And there's just no compromise or middle ground possible in the way that China frames the the potential for engagement with with Taiwan. So so China's preference is certainly peaceful unification with Taiwan, but they've made it very clear that that the the use of force to compel unification is an option that won't come off the table. The second factor is really the change and and the trends in Taiwan identity politics and, and the attitude of the population, and it's clearly shifting away from China. Uh, public opinion polls uh, and, and election outcomes are very clear on this point. The vast majority of Taiwanese people simply don't want to unify with China, and they want to maintain the current status quo. And that status quo is, is de facto independence. So, so neither one of the two main political parties in Taiwan accept Beijing's formula for unification, either the One China Principle or the One Country, Two Systems Framework. Uh, and that includes the Kuomintang, uh, which is much more conciliatory uh, towards Beijing than, uh, than the current ruling party, the, the DPP. So, so, so that's a big factor. And, and it's also important to recognize that Taiwanese young people's attitudes towards China are, are changing um, and they're different from the older generations. More young people self-identify as Taiwanese and they have much less affinity for, for the mainland than their parents do. So Taiwan is effectively growing apart culturally from China. I think the third factor uh, that, that enhances the sense of, of, of tension in the cross-strait relationship is that the U.S.-China relationship is under considerable strain. A- and that's not just because of Taiwan. I mean, economic competition is a big part of it. Uh, the U.S. government for, for more, than, more than five years has been very dissatisfied with the economic relationship with China. the the unequal playing field for companies in China, the trade imbalance, uh, intellectual property theft, uh, these are are all underlying stressors of the relationship. And and the inability of the two sides to reach a comprehensive agreement on a trade deal in 2016 and 2017 really initiated a period of tension that I think still continues to grow until now. And, And the U.S. is overall, I think, very uneasy about China's objectives and, and, and their, their strategy for the region and, and what that means for U.S. presence and access and influence in, in the Asia-Pacific region, uh, particularly the maintenance of the U.S. alliance network. So that sense of, of competition, the sense that China is a threat or at the very least a challenge is, is really deeply ensconced now in Washington's thinking. And, and Taiwan is just one part of that bigger strategic competition, but it's a really critical part.
0: If you compare the situation today with the dive in relations uh, that led up to the Korean War in 1953, and uh, probably the next big dip in ties, which probably took place around the uh, 1989 and the Tiananmen uh, incident, where are U.S.-China ties today?
1: It's difficult to compare the depths of the Korean War, where literally U.S. and Chinese troops were shooting at one another. Um, to even Tiananmen or today, I think the Tiananmen crisis, while it was a deep one in the bilateral relationship, those tensions and the, the isolation that that China suffered was actually quite short-lived. I mean, even the the Bush administration sent envoys to Beijing to reassure Deng Xiaoping uh, only a few months after the the the, the events in Tiananmen were in, in nineteen eighty-nine in June. So. So, so I think it's very, very different circumstance that we face now, particularly in the era after nineteen seventy nine and the normalization of relations we're we're in a very different phase of long term strategic competition that is not outright conflict, and it's very clear that that neither side wants to have outright conflict, but the tensions are real, the tensions are considerable and they're encompassing. I mean, they are affecting people-to-people ties. They're affecting economic ties. They're affecting security relationships. They're very comprehensive. And it's worrisome to people, but it's also, I think, manageable. And I think that's where you you, you can think about an outright conflict in the US and China in the context of Taiwan. But you also see in this context a effort by both Beijing and Washington to effectively manage the relationship. You do see high levels of engagement between General Secretary Xi Jinping and President Biden. You see discussions between Yang Jiechi and the National Security Advisor. You see conversations between the Minister of Foreign Affairs and the the Secretary of State. And I think those interactions contribute to a form of strategic stability that the two sides want now whether they can achieve it or not i think is is why there's handwringing so it's definitely you know the worst cycle down cycle of us china relations since 1979 but it doesn't mean that we're in in a near term trajectory towards a, an outright overt conflict we're we're in a period of competition but we're not necessarily in a period of conflict
0: that's uh, that. That's uh, you know a, a note of comfort to many in Asia. I'm sure, but Trevor, you've been outside and inside of the U.S. government at very high levels, and in your long association with China, Taiwan issues, how much would you say the American position has changed on Taiwan?
1: U.S. officials will often remark that U.S. policy towards China is longstanding and hasn't changed since 79. They, they will reaffirm that it's based on the three joint China-U.S. communiques, the Taiwan Relations Act, and the six assurances. And I think that's true. It's unchanged. The, the foundations of the relationship are unchanged. But, but there are plenty of outside observers, as, as you're alluding to in the question, that, that think that things are, are changing. And they think the U.S. position is changing. And, and the Chinese uh, interlocutors will often accuse the U.S. of changing its policy but but in fact i think the policy and the position isn't changing what you're seeing is the us changing its approach and it's adapting to to a changing situation and, and it gets back to you know your 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 first question essentially that there's growing concern about the potential of china using force against taiwan and that's why you're seeing essentially enhanced efforts to deter that so are both china and Taiwan affect the U.S. approach, and it needs to be dynamic. So so Beijing is responding to uh, growing coercion and pressure against Taiwan by Beijing. It's responding to demand signals from Taipei for reassurance. It's also listening to allies in the region who are concerned and are looking to the U.S. to demonstrate support for its allies and partners in the region. Taiwan, in that respect, is, is a proxy. For the US Alliance network. And that's why you see the US changing what it does to reassure Taiwan and, and deter Beijing. And, and that changes over time because the positions in Beijing and Taipei change. But what's really changed the most in the last 20 years is is China's military, which is, has undergone a, a rapid, sustained campaign to modernize and expand itself and and, and it's dramatically increasing its ability to project power on its periphery. I mean, China's Navy is has undergone the largest buildup of any country in any power since World War II. And, and under Xi Jinping in the last decade, Chinese foreign policies become a lot more assertive and a lot more aggressive. So the U.S. policy and position hasn't changed, but its approach changes. And it has to adapt to that cross-strait dynamic, uh, including China's military modernization and China's willingness to use coercion against other countries, and including Taiwan, where, where Beijing has has political differences.
0: Cool, it's interesting that you mentioned about uh, the uh, the approach uh, changing. But you know, uh, I'm sure you read the local press here in Singapore and uh, in the region. Uh, many of us in Asia are confused by the different signals coming out of Washington. You know, you have the president, uh, you know, Joe Biden, saying one thing, and the State Department quickly comes in with a sort of damage control statement. Now. Is Washington speaking with many voices, and is some of this deliberate?
1: So I think there's, there's an underlying philosophy in Washington that needs to be appreciated, and it's really how to solve this, the cross-strait conflict. And that philosophy is to create space for cross-strait negotiation, where Taiwan can negotiate from a position of, of relative security to achieve what, what hopefully is a durable solution that's satisfactory to the people on Taiwan. So, so that's really what's driving efforts. But yes, there are many voices, particularly in Washington. You have the White House, you have State Department, and Congress, which has always been a, a big voice on Taiwan. The you know remember the White House has always managed U.S.-China relationships going back, you know, going back to the days of Nixon and Kissinger. So, so the, the Washington White House voice is a key one, but Congress is deeply committed to Taiwan. So, so you're going to see some potential dissonance there, and that that's. I would say, baked into the U.S. political system. The other thing, of course, you have in Washington is a really vibrant civil society that's deeply invested in the national security process, right? The Washington think tanks. But you also have other parts of civil society that, that have very, very authentic and strong voices, and they represent diverse views. And those are potentially divergent from established policy. And and that's that's both free speech at work, but that's also how the US democratic process works. I mean, there's policy analysis going on as as people debate concepts like strategic ambiguity and, and how one demonstrates support for US allies and the value of allies. That's an ongoing discussion. So so there are many voices, but I think US interest in the peaceful resolution and cross-strait differences is is, is a constant. And, and, and U.S. policy towards that end is very consistent, and it hasn't changed over time. But yeah, to your point, President Biden has definitely spoken off the cuff now, I think, four times on the record since he's become president. And every time he does, it, it causes a bit of an uproar. So, so there's a tendency to describe his remarks as a shift in policy, but, but really what he's doing is he's speaking his mind. Uh, especially when it comes to U.S. security commitments um, in the region and to Taiwan specifically. So so that's not a shift in policy.
0: Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. Let's continue the conversation with my guest, Mr. Drew Thompson, Visiting Senior Research Fellow at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy in Singapore. You spoke about many voices in Washington, D.C., and many interested parties in the subject. Now, a big voice is that of uh, the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. What did you make of the visit to Taiwan recently by Speaker Pelosi? Uh, a lot of people in Asia, including myself, thought it was perhaps needling the Chinese a bit too much and it was not quite necessary. And what did you make of the Chinese reaction to it?
1: So I think a lot of ink was spilled around her event, uh, which in some ways is positive. It got a lot of people thinking about the cross-strait relationship, the role of U.S. assurances to its allies and partners. And I I think, you know, I'd, I'd have to refer you back to Speaker Pelosi in her office about you know her intentions and 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 whether or not she she sought to needle Beijing as a as a motivating factor or whether her objective was to reassure a, a longstanding U.S. partner. But I think the most important outcome of that visit was that Pelosi's visit was really a wake-up call, particularly here in, in Southeast Asia. It's one of the reasons we're having this podcast because there's a, there's growing recognition and its relatively newfound recognition of the importance of cross-strait stability to the interests of people here in Singapore and throughout Southeast Asia. And, and I think it's not just Pelosi's visit, but but the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, and then particularly the Chinese response to Speaker Pelosi's visit, you know, the military exercise, the demonstrations of force, I mean, really brings home for people cognitively the, the possibility that, that China could in fact use military force against Taiwan I think it had always been sort of an abstract concern that many people were quick to brush off uh, in the past you know thinking that that a war over Taiwan would be very costly and therefore everyone would avoid it but but I think the invasion of Ukraine and, and China's launching of ballistic missiles and military demonstrations and very large packages of, of fighter aircraft flying, know, into Taiwan's uh, air defense identification zone, I think really brought home for people the potentiality of an armed conflict over Taiwan. And and you couple that with a very assertive Chinese foreign policy, China's predilection to use economic and diplomatic coercion uh, uh, to impose costs on other countries when there are political differences. I think, heighten that concern. It's not just ballistic missiles, but it's the full spectrum of coercion that China's quick to use that I think really disturbed people here in Southeast Asia. And I think ultimately what the U.S. was trying to achieve there was sending a really important signal of reassurance to Taiwan and, and to U.S. allies in the region, demonstrating that the U.S. is willing to stand up to China in defense of its allies despite the threats of retaliation from Beijing. Um, and, and, and to your question about how China responded, I think Secretary of State Tony Blinken said pretty clearly that China chose to overreact. And, and that overreaction and you know, the use of military demonstrations, the ballistic missile launches were in response to a political difference. Uh, and I think that that underlines the really fundamental challenge as well as the very high stakes for maintaining cross-strait stability.
0: In fact, that's the point I was trying to make uh, recently. That uh, in a way, uh, Pelosi probably played into Chinese hands because it has uh, Beijing has now been able to establish a new normal in the Taiwan Straits, where it can routinely cross the median line, and uh, you know, which it sort of uh, hesitated to do in the past.
1: Well, I mean, China had crossed over that median line before Pelosi's visit, and and despite. Uh, you know, the fairly large squ- you know, sorties of, of aircraft into the 80s, they were actually larger ones a year earlier. China's been regularly exercising its military around Taiwan. It's been conducting encirclement missions with its aircraft carriers, with, with strategic bombers. Um, it's been practicing its military on, on Taiwan's East Coast, uh, out into the, the middle of the Pacific, and all of that is intended to, to put pressure and threaten Taiwan. And I, think, and I think that's essentially what part of what Pelosi was responding to. And, and the, the issue is that so long as, as China is really relying on the threat of military force as really the primary policy tool for maintaining cross-strait relations and, and preventing Taiwan from overtly, openly declaring independence, rather than seeking peaceful means to resolve their political differences, then then the risk of conflict is, is definitely there. And that's why U.S. politicians have to pay specific attention and they have to reassure U.S. allies and U.S. partners that, that the U.S. is going to contribute to their defense and is going to stand up to Chinese bullying. And it's not just about Taiwan. And and maybe that played into China's hands, but but I mean... I think that there's been opinion polls in Taiwan and people that I've spoken to in Taiwan after the visit, I think that they felt that the costs of, the, of, of China's response has been quite positive. I think, I think the people of Taiwan were very pleased that she came, despite China's reaction. And, and, and that, in a way, validates the approach, because that's the purpose, is to reassure Taiwan, to, to create the possibility that they're in a position to negotiate with Beijing when Beijing is ready to come to the table, which they're currently not.
0: But suppose things do slide into a bit of a conflict. Would Taiwan, with uh, 23 million people, be able to defend itself? Uh, I saw some statistics recently saying that even the number of conscripts has uh, dropped lately.
1: I mean, Taiwan is, is actively seeking to transform and reform its military, which is an ongoing process. Uh, it's trying to adapt uh, adopt a asymmetric strategy uh, which is essentially where a, a small force can can overcome a larger force and yeah it's tempting as you say you know the indicator you, you just noted the you know, nine, you know 23 million people against 1.2 billion people you know, oh china is so big and taiwan is so small what chance do they have well you know i'd point out that russia is quite big and ukraine is quite small the United States is quite big and Afghanistan is quite small. The underdog, the little guy fighting on their own terrain, taking advantage of short lines of communication, using asymmetric tactics, right? Hiding in the terrain, using decoys, being small and numerous, and really maximizing your own advantages, understanding those advantages and maximizing them gives you the real possibility of of actually succeeding in a conflict. And for China to attempt what essentially would be the largest amphibious assault since 1944, it's really the most complicated military maneuver there is. The PLA is totally untested, hasn't had to do another similar activity, um, and and probably can't replicate the complete complexity and, and challenge of an amphibious invasion in exercises, yeah, you know, it creates great uncertainty. I mean, Taiwan is investing in in asymmetric capabilities like unmanned aerial vehicles, loitering munitions, sea mines, um, anti ship cruise missiles launched from land. So, so the U.S. is selling them harpoons, but but Taiwan already has domestically made similar anti ship cruise missiles on trucks, and and some of them can even be hidden. You know, camouflage to look like delivery vehicles, which which makes it very difficult for for China to find them and, and take them out, and, and they can hide. I mean, if Taiwan's terrain is is really quite forbidding for an invader, it's it's worth noting that the U.S. military in, in World War II had plans to invade Taiwan in 1945, Operation Causeway. It was very very detailed, and it was approved by the Joint Staff as a as a war plan. But on on further reflection, the U.S. military decided that taiwan an invasion of Taiwan would really just be too daunting and too difficult, and and the military decided to invade Okinawa instead. And and if you know anything about the Battle of Okinawa, that was no cakewalk. So I think Taiwan would be much worse. And their ability to attrit an invading force on the strait as it approaches Taiwan is, is being invested in heavily and their ability to defend their beaches is being enhanced. And that's why they're shifting their training. The, the, the defense minister yesterday in Taiwan was was hinting to, to, to their parliament that, that the, the length of time for conscription training was going to increase, possibly after their local elections in November. That's not terribly politically popular, but keeping in mind it wasn't politically popular here in Singapore in the 1960s either. So so Taiwan now needs to to, to rethink how it does conscription, how it reforms its reserve forces, its territorial defense forces, its army, essentially, and and how it integrates an all-volunteer force with an evolving conscription force, with an evolving and reforming reserves, strategic reserve force, as well as a professional reserve force. It's a daunting effort that they're making.
0: Yes, Drew, you did mention the sale of uh, harpoon missiles to uh, Taiwan. A few hours ago, the New York Times pushed uh, uh, an alert into my mailbox, and it says that the U.S. intends to turn Taiwan into a giant weapons depot, a sort of porcupine that uh, China will find hard to swallow. What did you make of it?
1: Uh, I'm I'm reluctant to critique that article. I'm not sure that the New York Times is necessarily the, the right place to litigate military strategy. And I think it, it, missed, it missed a number of really important points. Uh, I mean, the Taiwan military has to consider its logistics like any military. Uh, if, you look at, if you look at Russia's recent experience, it, what they say that um, amateurs talk strategy, professionals talk logistics and and having adequate war reserve munitions on the island is important delivering new munitions to to Taiwan in a conflict would be a challenge in wartime and at the same time you know the US doesn't necessarily have deep reserves and magazines full of ammunition particularly in light of of what's been transferred to Ukraine in the last few months so the U.S. isn't necessarily going to have war stocks on hand, but the U.S. Congress is is working on, on appropriating funds that um, could potentially be used to to increase the amount of munitions that that Taiwan has, um, whether they're stored on island or stored nearby, uh, is possible. But you know the U.S. works very closely with Taiwan now to manage its U.S. supplied. Material and 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 people will often say, "Wow, look at how expensive a single airplane the U.S. makes cost, or look at how expensive that missile is, you know, per unit versus something made by another country." And and the reason those U.S. prices are so expensive is because the U.S. doesn't just sell a single missile; it sells essentially the service package. You know, you get the extended warranty with it. it it's it's a lifetime of of technical support. That comes with that sale, and that makes it expensive. But it makes it more than just a weapon; it makes it really with, with what they call in the jargon a capability.
0: Mm-hmm. Drew, this has been a fascinating conversation, and I want to end uh, with a question to you. You sounded uh, a bit hopeful that we can avoid conflict uh, in the Taiwan Straits, and do you think Moss Team could come off? after President Xi Jinping gets his third term, which should be uh, within days, and once the midterm elections are done in the United States?
1: So I, mean, I don't think the U.S. midterm elections are going to affect the U.S. policy towards China. You know, the midterms are mostly focused on domestic issues. I mean, even, even presidential elections in the U.S. are primarily focused on domestic affairs. Yeah. You know, US
0: cons- but, but, you know, you do you, you, you have seen uh, a procession of uh, American uh, lawmakers, uh, you know, making their way to Taiwan lately.
1: Oh, of course. Of course. Um, I, again, you know, Taiwan is a pretty critical partner to the U.S. I mean, it, it's, it's pretty central to supply chains, ICT, integrated circuits. It's the 23rd largest economy in the world. It's the U.S. 11th, 10th largest trading partner, maybe ninth at this point. So so yeah, it's a it's a critical U.S. partner, and again, and and one that needs reassurance. So Congress has always supported Taiwan, but but I don't think that's as much for local vote getting. It's actually rather difficult for many, especially congressmen, to to really make the case to their constituents about the importance of Taiwan, because you know it's not a it's not a guns and butter issue in in small town America. So. I really don't think that Taiwan is a big factor or China in, in, in the U.S. local, in the U.S. midterm elections. Uh, and again, remember that concerns about China and the threats and the challenges that it presents are really bipartisan. So, so China is not really, some, some congressmen might use China as, as, a, as a cudgel, um, but it's, it's, not, um, it's not being used by one party against another. It's a rare point of consensus. But to, I mean, to your bigger question about about Xi Jinping and, and what what might Chinese policy look like after the Twenty Party Congress, I mean that's a great question. I think on the one hand, certainly there could be some relaxation after the Party Congress, just because it's such a politically charged atmosphere now. But but I you know I think the, the Party Congress is really a part of a continuum of political events. It's 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 an important one, but it really sort of cements the work of the last. Five years under the Central Committee. I mean, Xi Jinping reports, you know, gives a big, you know, what's known as the the work report. That's a big, big part of the the conference. Um, but it really locks in the course for the next five years. And I think it's really this Party Congress is going to be an affirmation of Xi Jinping and his approach to governments rather than a transitional phase. I mean, it would be it would be fantastic if somehow a, a new Taiwan policy comes out of the 20th Party Congress that changes direction completely, you know, renounces the use of force or reduces the military or diplomatic or economic coercion and the pressure that Beijing puts on Taipei. But, um, I mean, I don't, see, I don't see that happening. I don't see an outcome of the Party Congress with Beijing committing to opening a dialogue with, with Taiwan without the preconditions of accepting the 92 consensus or one country, two systems. So so I think until Beijing indicates a degree of openness towards or flexibility in its approach such as a, a new political formula because I think one country two systems is unacceptable to both political parties in Taiwan Beijing if it's going to resolve this peacefully has to take into account the will of the people on Taiwan but unfortunately I don't think that's going to happen so there are mechanisms in place. There are efforts being made both in Beijing and in Washington to reduce the possibility of conflict, of certainly inadvertent conflict. But I don't think that um, the 20th Party Congress is going to significantly change China's trajectory or its intentions towards Taiwan. And and that's unfortunately... um, going to consign us to another five years of of wringing our hands about whether or not China will use force to resolve this, as Xi Jinping has said twice, and not leave the problem to the next generation.
0: That's fantastic. Drew Thompson, thank you for appearing on Speaking of Asia.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: And that's a wrap for Speaking of Asia, a podcast series by The Straits Times Asian Insider Channel. I'm Ravi Velour. Don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and family. And if you'd like to read my articles, we have links in our podcast text below. That was a podcast by the Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa enabled devices.